Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. As always, uh, we uh, have a, a great pleasure in uh, welcoming back Ian Cronshaw, uh, who has, uh, over many years, uh, given us the insights uh, from being uh, a part of the development of the World Energy Outlook uh, team in the past. Uh, and uh, this year uh, is slightly different in that, um, uh, although he's, uh, he's uh, still uh, engaged uh, with... Uh, with his former colleagues, uh, he is uh, now uh, in that wonderful state of uh, retirement uh, where he spends uh, the uh, summer in uh, France enjoying the delights of the French countryside and then spends his other summer in Australia enjoying the delights of uh, Canberra and the beaches. So uh, he, I think he's obviously got things very right. Um, so uh, Ian, uh, of course, uh, uh, worked uh, with the International Energy Agency for many years, but many of you may not realise that uh, he also spent uh, 36 years working with the Australian Federal Government on energy policy on just about every topic imaginable. Uh, Ian has an enormous uh, font of knowledge in just about every area of energy and uh, it's always with great pleasure that we welcome him back to deliver the World Energy Outlook. Please welcome Ian Cronshaw. Um, nice to be back in Australia for some nice cool weather. Um, France had... Uh, 2018 was the hottest summer ever recorded until 2019 came along. Um, south of France had maximum temperature of 46.5 degrees and that is an all-time record for France by about five degrees give or take. Uh, that was recorded in a region where the average maximum June temperature is 28 degrees, so 18 degrees above normal. Paris said 42 and a half, um, not just for one day either, for a number of days. Uh, anyone who's been to Paris will know that's probably not a very comfortable temperature. Uh, air conditioning in France, uh, it's about 5% of homes have air conditioning. Um, the first thing I want to say about the WEO is the World Energy Outlook, I keep calling it WEO, um, the World Energy Outlook, is it is not about, it's not forecasting at all. It's basically an assessment of policy adequacy. And we do that um, in a number of ways, methodologically, I'll talk about it in a moment. It, they are not forecasts, they are projections and they're based on policy. Why does policy matter? Um, investment, which is the key to energy security and the energy transition, investment is around about 70% driven by government policy. 70% going in the future. About in the electricity sector, which is the key sector and I'll probably spend most of the time talking about, around about 90% of investment is driven by government policy. And, and of course the key takeaway is, and I think it's pretty obvious, those policies are inadequate to achieve energy policy goals. They're inadequate to achieve security goals, affordability goals, and especially energy transition goals. So those of you who've been to my lectures before will know how I like, always like to start with a little quiz. I think there's a few familiar faces. So those of you who don't know how this works, um, right, so um, first question. Um, year 2000, Around 80% of global energy came from fossil fuels. 
In fact, about 1990 was about the same as well. So you've got four options there. So who thinks the first option for 2018 fossil fuel first? What have we got? Three quarters. Fallen to three quarters. Yeah. Those fallen to below 70%? Oh, my goodness. Okay, fallen to below two-thirds. Okay, increased slightly. Okay, you've already got one key message. <laughs> okay, um, second one, US, US net oil imports. US oil production peaked well, way back here in 1970. This is, you can tell I'm old. I love history. Um, thanks for Ken. Um, I love history. Um, you can see here US, this is US oil imports, and that scale is pretty impressive. Um, that's, their million, that's 5 million barrels, 10, 15 million barrels a day. Um, Australia's total oil consumption is just over 1 million barrels. Just for, so um, up to 2007, we saw US oil imports rise to about two-thirds of demand. And my little quiz question is, so as we speak, where is it now? So those, what have we got? Closer to 40%? Below a third? 15%? Okay, just a few percent? Or a net oil exporter? Net oil exporter, okay. You don't get the answers, by the way, but you get them at the end. Sorry. It's <laughs> too, too easy. Okay, third point. Okay, which power sector is, no surprises here, power sector has contributed most over the last decade since 2010 to emissions. Who's number two silver medalist? Okay, heavy industry, steel, cement. Okay, aviation, growing like crazy. Heavy trucks, practically no fuel efficiency standards. SUVs. Okay, shipping. Okay, this one's clean bold a few people. Okay, <laughs> we're getting we're getting to the end of the quiz. Don't panic, Ken. Okay. Um, definitely worth highlighting, 100 gigawatts of solar built in 2018. A little bit of a plateau, a bit disappointing from 17, but all the same, a very impressive achievement. Um, so what I've asked there is, if we kept building at that rate, how long would it take to provide the whole world's current generation? And I've given you a little hint there, 7,000 gigawatts is installed capacity. So. Do I hear seven hands up for 70? Okay. 140? 200? We've got some pessimists in the room. 400? Okay. All right. Good. Okay. Lastly, a little Australian reference here. Okay. What proportion of Australian liquid fuels is imported? Either imported or imported from refined fuel? Half? Okay, three quarters, 80, more than 90. Okay, all right, well, that's, that's good to know. A little conversation in the toilet at half time there and uh, a little discussion about security. So getting onto the real we oh, what's happening here? So what have we got here? Yeah, we're good. So oil, oil markets, I mean, we've had some pretty interesting uh, events over the course of the year, the, the Abkhaz, um, oil processing facility in Saudi Arabia was, was bombed. 
Um, 5.7 million barrels a day of oil production lost. Um, Iran's down to about half its normal um, production level or capacity. Um, Venezuela's in, in terrible strife. I don't want to go into all of those, but the market has been remarkably calm and in fact the sense of, um, I don't know, urgency about fuel security seems, seems quite absent. Secondly, the need for rapid cuts in emissions. Well, um, you've, you've heard, I'm coming on and Ken says six of these. Every year I say the same thing, emissions have to peak immediately and then have to fall. Um, last year they rose 1.9% um, globally and in a few years where it looked to be flattening out, that was not the case in 2018. Energy, energy use rose 2.3%, so I suppose we should be grateful that the greenhouse gas increase was less. But um, the other bad thing about the energy increase was probably a fifth of it was caused by extreme heat or cold events, climate-related events. Um, fossil fuels remain substantially high, um, haven't changed at all, and um, emissions obviously have hit historic high. We don't spend a lot of time talking about this, but 850 million people still lack access to electricity, a large portion of those in Africa. I'll talk a little bit more about Africa. And, of course, more than 2 billion people lack access to clean cooking with all the, the impact that, that that has. We have a terrific tool, cost reductions and digitalisation, fabulous new technologies. Please, this does not mean that policy can be ignored. Um, I think listening to Audrey's talk this morning, it's pretty clear in the electricity sector we still have a very substantial piece of work in changing market designs and indeed governments still have a role in keeping that cost of capital down and there are several ways around that. More than ever, decision makers need to take a hard evidence-based look at the choices ahead. I won't labour that point. I don't think it needs labouring in this, in this town anyway. Um, I might just along the way um, provide a few little hints on policies, what's happening globally and I'll leave the audience to reflect on what that might mean for Australia. I might just give you a few little hints along the way too. Um, so, this is not a forecast. I keep repeating that. Um, we have three scenarios. I'll, I'll basically only talk really about two of them. The first is our so-called current policies. The second, which we call the stated policy scenario, we've renamed that, but it, affects, um, it reflects the policies, for example, in the EU where people of countries have committed themselves to zero carbon by 2050. And the third, which is a reverse engineered scenario, sustainable development, what do we need to get to, to achieve climate goals, access goals, and indeed security goals as well. And of course, one of the great things about the sustainability, we reduce energy demand, including oil demand. So sustainability has a very strong security dividend as well. So, yeah, I did promise some history and I can't resist this. So, we look back to 1919, we see we actually have seen over the past century some multiple transitions and some very fast transitions historically um, from a coal-based economy to one where we were starting to see oil come in with the big discoveries. Um, Saudi Arabia had just been discovered then most of that oil was American. Um, we started to see gas make an entrance uh, on the back of some big discoveries and some big trading arrangements. And, and indeed, we actually saw nuclear power coming in, in 2000, well, in those two decades, 2018. The problem here is scale. When you do that, you realise that the transitions were impressive in their speed at the time, but the scale is one. Um, you can see, for example, uh, energy demand has grown by a factor of 10 over that period. Um, world economy grew by a factor of 20, which 
So we've made some impressive efficiency improvements as well. Um, we looked at 2040, and you can see that's the stated policies um, outcome. You can see there a nice little chunk at the very top. Where are we? That little baby up there. Modern renewables, um, making already starting, that's renewables in general, it includes hydro. But you can see quite a big increase there. Is it enough? Mm, possibly, possibly not. Um, the first thing is about oil, and it's about, about shale oil, and equally about shale gas. And that graph I showed you earlier, so you can see 2005 there, shale was just in its infancy. Now 2019, obviously, dramatic increase. That, that increase, by the way, as it is, um, it's 10, more than 10 million barrels, which is roughly the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's oil production. So just in, in not much more than a decade, a dramatic increase in, in oil. It didn't happen overnight. Well, it did happen overnight, obviously, but the groundwork for, for being laid, the geological research, a lot of it underpinned by government, the partnerships, the financial arrangements preceded that by a very large margin. Um, the same, we could do the same for gas. I'll come back to gas uh, in another slide. What, of course, that does have is a very immediate impact in that the United States is no longer importing large slabs of, of oil. Um, the Atlantic market is, in fact, now extremely well supplied, and that's part of the reason why we've seen, um, seen such an amazing stability in, in markets. Um, what that means in the case of OPEC, by 2025, the OPEC share, it's not shown there, but the OPEC share is down to about 36% in global oil supply. Um, we should be happy in Australia because a lot, of, a lot of our oil, of course, comes from Middle East and OPEC countries. So 30, a 36% share, I don't know, I'm scratching my head a bit here, but probably have to go back to around about 1990 to see a similar share that low of OPEC in the production. Um, we could do, yeah, we could do the same thing for gas, but I'll, I'll skip that one until we come to it. So a couple of interesting things definitely happening. Um, when we look back at the last 20 years or so, um, oil has been a very major part of increasing energy supply. And that's partly because we've seen developing countries who've taken to expanding their economies, buying new cars, using trucks for transport and so on. Um, electricity, not so, not so much. But when we look ahead, we see those positions reversed. And I guess the several important things there is that oil demand falls back uh, on the back of efficiency policies. Um, sadly, those efficiency policies are lacking in Australia. Well, they're absent, they're not lacking. Um, but again, I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, but in the case of electricity, it's only a few years back, there was a presidential um, campaign debate in France where the, the socialist candidate proudly said that nuclear power only provided 8% um, of French energy. And she was correct in that, although nuclear power does provide three quarters of their electricity because electricity in the final consumption was only about 12% at the time. Now, that has already rapidly increased and we see it increasing further. And in fact, electricity demand growth is roughly double that of um, the, the energy economy as a whole, roughly double, something like 60% growth over the next 20 years or so. And of course, electricity is the key vector for decarbonisation so we have some good news there in that the demand growth is going to be taken by electricity and we have the instruments available, if not the policies, we have the instruments available to decarbonise the power sector. So um, natural gas, China. This is incremental growth 
Um, and again, you might not be familiar with that unit, billion cubic metres, but Australia's, Australia consumes around about 35 or 40 billion cubic metres of gas. Exports about, or will when it reaches peak, be exporting about 100. So that's incremental growth in China. China, when I started the IEA in 2005, China used, used 50 BCM of gas, barely more than Australia, and it was about 2% of its energy economy. Um, since that time, it's grown to about 280, he says, with a little bit of uncertainty, uh, around about 280, which is making about 5 or 6% of its energy use. Um, typical, typical IEA country has gas at about 20 or even 25% of energy use. And you can see there growth of, of 400 billion cubic metres over the next 20 years. Um, that's pretty impressive growth. Having said that, it'll still only be around about 10 to 12% of um, the Chinese economy. But very important benefits for both greenhouse gas emissions and for, for local pollution. Anyone who's been to Beijing in the last 10 years can only be thankful for the, the advent of gas there. Southeast Asia and India, again, I could talk a lot about that. The interesting thing about it is in the past, it's been the electricity sector that has driven gas use, and that's still quite important. Um, gas is a really important balancing fuel in some of those markets, but indeed it's, it's, been, it's industry that we see converting um, a lot of it from direct coal use to gas, and, and that is quite important. On the, on the supply side, on the supply side, okay, on the supply side, LNGs will become much, much more important. And just to quickly talk about some of the developments there, um, I, every time I come back, I hear Australia will be the world's leading LNG exporter, and that may be true for a year or two or three, but the United States is busy catching up. Their first plant was authorised for export in 2011, and export started in the beginning of 2016, so from authorisation to export less than five years, and indeed we have um, either under operating or under construction um, some 130 billion cubic metres of export projects from the United States. The important thing about the United States is the pricing basis is completely different, completely um, moving away from the traditional oil indexed model and indeed um, a long-term contract model as well. Now that will put a very considerable pressure on pricing. We can talk a little bit about that if people want to have questions. Um, Australia obviously will still be there, won't disappear. Um, Qatar, after the moratorium has been lifted, um, will probably pass Australia sometime in the next decade as well. Um, as well as, we've still got pipeline projects here. Large-scale pipelines um, continue to supply China, for example, from Turkmenistan. That first pipeline from Turkmenistan, by the way, was built in three years. The Chinese really can do things in a hurry. And um, when I say built, it's, we're talking 8,000 kilometres from Turkmenistan to Shanghai. It's not, it's not next door. Um, uh, the Russian pipeline's taken a little bit longer. Um, China and Russia have had a little bit of form over the years, as we like to say in the racing game. Um, so relations haven't all been that well, but um, the pipeline is going ahead and we should see first gas from, um, from Russia into China in a few years. But LNG will continue to be very, very important and indeed um, will start to dominate, well, not dominate trade, then certainly become a very important part of it. Pricing, pricing will be important. Just a little quick word about Africa. Um, I mentioned earlier Africa has probably about three quarters of the people without electricity and, and uh, a very large portion of the people without clean cooking. Um, demographic wise, um, Africa's population is going to double um, in the next two decades, give or take a bit. And that we anticipate that will have some very interesting consequences 
for um, energy demand across all major sectors, starting with oil demand. Um, car ownership in Africa now is about 15 vehicles per 1,000 people. 15. Australia, it's about 10, 750, 770, of that order, anyway. So there's a fair way to go still, um, but in terms of driving energy demand growth, we've talked a lot about India and Ch well, China in previous outlooks, and the last couple of years, India. Um, Africa still will be quite important there. Um, natural gas, again, gas is a tiny part of African energy demand. They've made a number of major discoveries. In fact, in the last decade or so, about 40% of major gas discoveries um, globally have been in Africa and places like Mozambique and Angola, Egypt for that matter as well, um, and West Africa, Senegal, Mauritania. We anticipate those discoveries will be developed and local consumption will be part of that development. Again, industry will be important there for things like fertiliser production. Um, electricity, I think, again, you, you may have heard me talk a few years back about a country like Ethiopia with 100 million people with an energy, with electricity demand roughly that of South Australia. Um, obviously, per capita electricity use is extremely low. Um, renewables generation seems, you can, looking at that seems awfully low as well until you look at the amount of installed photovoltaic capacity in Africa currently stands at five gigawatts. Now, Australia is doing, what, three or four a year? Total installed in Africa is five. My Dutch colleague was quick to point out that that's roughly, five gigawatts is roughly the solar capacity of the Netherlands. And if you've ever been to the Netherlands, it's probably not the sunniest place you'd think of, but anyway, they do good cheese. Um, <laughs> it is possible to imagine, in a different case, um, a situation where renewable growth is much faster and we can talk, you know, if I get time, we can talk a little bit about the, the conditions for that happening. OK, power sector. Um, this is, now, this is global installed power capacity. And you can see here the very rapid ramp up that we had in the last 20 years for coal, obviously a lot of it in China. But we see that flattening off. Um, we've seen, we see a lot of coal projects, well, coal plant being closed in older OECD economies. Um, just to pick one, Britain, the last, the youngest coal plant, youngest coal plant in Britain was ended service in the mid-80s, that's Drax in Yorkshire. So a lot of coal fleet is very old and that will disappear. The bad news is there's still 170 gigawatts under construction and um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next slide. So that's a stated policy scenario. Forget. Um, gas still progressing very strongly. Um, gas prices are lower on the back of that uh, increase in North American production in particular. Um, and gas is a very important transition fuel. Um, gas delivers, in the case of North America and Europe, gas delivers more energy than electricity. And as we're transitioning away um, to a lower carbon future, the role of gas will become very interesting. We've got a good case study in the ACT. Again, I was talking to some people out there over coffee. Um, nuclear, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more a bit further. Still a very important low carbon fuel um, if you go to somewhere like Sweden, um, nearly half of Swedish power production is, is nuclear and the other half is hydro, so they have very low, um, very low carbon footprint in their power sector based on nuclear. The Swedes did want to close down all their power plants post Chernobyl. They were one of the countries affected by Chernobyl quite badly. Um, they didn't um, for reasons to do with their carbon footprint. Um, hydro still growing in a very conventional way. But the real story here is, first of all, wind. 
um, wind, wind capacity roughly triples, I think that is. Um, but I think perhaps even more impressively is that solar PV. So we're always, always being told we're too conservative with our forecasts. Okay, fine. Um, that number, okay, th thanks. 3,200 gigawatts is half the current global installed capacity, half. So it's pretty impressive. Um, it's pretty clear that in a lot of places in the world where um, we have a good resource for solar and where electricity prices are high or rising, and obviously Australia ticks both those boxes, then um, solar is becoming much, much more economic. However, we do make it very, very clear that we still need a fair bit of policy involvement here. Now, that policy involvement may take the work of market design that Audrey Zibelman was talking about this morning, but there's also, and she mentioned it as well, there's a key role for governments here in keeping the cost of capital low. And one of the ways you can do that, of course, is to guarantee a market share, and that's been done with the, the renewable target. Um, when we started our renewable target in Australia, of course, it was a pretty, pretty unambitious, nine and a half terawatt hours. Now it's 33. Plenty of other countries are doing um, a lot more. Um, one, of the reasons, one of the reasons our projections have been low, remember these are based on policies. These are based on policies that we know about. So, you know, if I, if I go back to 2005, when I was doing this work, Australia's target for 2020 was 9.5 terawatt hours. Now we're going we're to have, what, 35, I guess. And the reason that is we changed the policy, cranked it up. In the case of China, at that same time, Chinese policy for 2020 was one gigawatt. The policy target now is 50. That's what policy ambition can do. So there's a virtuous circle here, policy ambition, scale, technology development driving down costs. It's worked in PV. I'd like to see it spread a lot more widely through the economy in a whole collection of areas. Um, avoiding the boom and bust, that was one of the questions this morning. That was a really good comment. The interesting thing, so when we look at 2020 in terms of these, this is capacity, of course, the renewables as a group add up to just under half of total generation, which is quite, quite a change from where we are now. Um, that amount of PV uh, generates around about 11% um, of global power. So a lot of capacity, it's important, um, but we need to think pretty carefully about, about some of the issues around that. And the first of those issues is flexibility. So we're going to have a lot more capacity, <coughs> a lot more capacity, um, but we're also going to have to need a lot more flexibility. So we had a bit of fun with this slide. So <coughs> out of our adjustments in, we sat back and looked at a bit of history here, and in the European Union, um, we saw a big increase, big increase in demand. That's about 60 gigawatts from memory. We're at halftime in the uh, World Cup final, won by France, of course. 4-2 um, for those of you, a young killing, a young not that I'm bragging or anything. It was French were pretty happy about that. Um, so if we map, we can, and we can map that out in the jurisdictions. In the case of India, I think that was the IPL final um, last year as well. One of the nice things about coming back to Australia, I get to look at cricket again. Don't get much in France. So, yeah, IPL final. So let me plot some of these out for different regions. Whoops, come back. So we see that flexibility needs typically in 2018, you know, around about plus or minus 10, 15, maybe 20%. And, you know, the grids cope with that just fine. Um, quite a lot of those countries, of course, have high shares of variable renewable already. I think we've got some 20, or it might be more, um, number of countries with relatively high shares of variable renewable. But when we look for the future and we plot this out, we see how much greater demands there are for flexibility. 
Now that flexibility can come from lots of sources. Um, Audrey Zibelman again talked about some of them. Transmission, move power around between different areas, get complementar technical complementarity between wind and solar. We're certainly seeing that in Europe. Um, the ability to store electricity, and that means a suite of technologies. It means batteries, the price of which are coming down, pumped hydro, um, and demand-side participation, of course, and that's going to become increasingly important with increasingly peak demand driven by increasing air conditioning penetration. Like, you know, there's a joke in French that doesn't translate very well, but I'm as busy as, as an air conditioning salesman um, because of those 46-degree temperatures. Flexibility. Um, just, to, just looking at coal, so 2,250 gigawatts of coal-fired capacity. A lot of it quite inefficient, a lot of it quite old. Um, and, well, sorry, and a lot of it in Asia and a lot of it built quite recently. Um, a big chunk of that capacity, China and India, uh, average age is around about 12 years. Now, okay, photovoltaics is fine, but we have this huge legacy issue of what to do with this more than 2,000 gigawatts. I might add there's another 500 gigawatts in the planning stage, but, well, until I see the concrete and the steel in the ground, I'm not, don't get too excited about it. That's the profile from that, of that lifetime of emissions, and that's gigatons, right? Gigatons. Um, as I said, um, last year emissions rose with world totals about 33. So this is the largest source of emissions. And, I mean, the IEA from time to time gets accused of being a coal-loving organisation. Um, this is what has to happen um, with coal-fired power in a sustainable scenario. Now, if that's promoting coal, well, OK, fine. So what, what do we do with the difference between with these long-lived assets? Well, basically three techniques, carbon capture and storage. OK, we can be... Progress has been slow on the technology, but if we haven't got that technology, we're going to have to think of something very smart. We can repurpose some of this work to provide intermediate um, load, i.e. reduce its load factor. But of course, again, as Audrey Zibelman said this morning, we need to incentivise that somehow. And at the moment, we don't have that ability. And of course, this is true in, in Australia. And, and finally, some early retirements. And that's not as bad as it sounds. The early retirement um, issue there, the Chinese already retired about 35-odd gigawatts uh, of power, uh, mainly the inefficient subcritical, obviously. Um, even the, and the Germans have done, I think, 14, 15, something like that, uh, of early retirement, well, say early, uh, after 33 years of operation. Now, of course, that curve, that curve, and, you know, you might argue reality is going to be somewhere in between, that curve means some pretty interesting social and economic issues. Um, you know, after the events of the May election here, I probably don't need to labour them, but I'll just give you the German example. A lot of their coal-fired power is generated east of Germany, where there's still real ongoing social unemployment issues and that will require a very real effort to do something with what's a very large coal industry there based on lignite, unfortunately, well, from a climate perspective. So just there's been a little bit of discussion on nuclear energy in Australia, so I just thought I'd recycle a few slides from last year. Um, two directions for nuclear power behind that line, that a relatively stable line. Um, nuclear power obviously led by the United States, European Union and Japan. Um, Japan, well, Japan's question mark against it. But to 2040, we basically see um, retirements. We don't see new build, even with relatively strenuous efforts to extend the lifetime of plants. 
in, however, in developing countries, and particularly China, we see a very big increase in China, although the current phase of their build is, is almost complete, we see an ongoing role there. And of course, that's very, should that not eventuate, of course, that will put a lot of load on other technologies. I just wanted to share a couple of, couple of little vignettes from France. These, these aren't IEA slides. And those of you who don't read French, well, tough. Um, <laughs> sorry. But I'll give you a few hints, come on. This word, malediction, uh, basically translates as curse. Um, Flamanville is um, one of three reactors, sorry, one of four reactors that EDF have built um, recently, or are building. And um, first one of those was 2005, started in Finland, Olukuoktil, and that was built on a fixed price contract of 3.3 billion euro, about five, what's that, about a bit more than five billion Aussie. Um, that reactor isn't finished as we speak, and probably won't end a service for at least another couple of years, and the cost overrun is very, very considerable. Um, the second one is this one, Flamanville, which is out near Cherbourg, if you know your French geography. Uh, it was started in 2007, and again, it is not finished. Its budget, again, was about 3.5 billion euro from memory, and currently it's standing at about 12 billion euro and counting. That's, that's cost overrun the way Mount Everest is a mountain. Um, so needless to say, there's a fair about amount of debate. Oh, yeah, I've got one more to share. Um, that's, that's a headline from that radical journal, Le Monde. We want our anti. Um, again, this word here, cauchemar desk, the middle part of that word, cauchemar means nightmare. So I think you get the drift of that, the, the EPR, which is the name of the reactor of Flamanville, Chantier cauchemar desk. The good news is um, they built two reactors quite successfully in China, uh, in Guangdong province. First one ended service last year and the second one this year. They were started in 2009. That's a slow build by Chinese standards. As I said, they like to build things in three or four or five years rather than ten. But still, um, they've come on and they've been economically quite successful. So the outlook for nuclear is, is quite mixed. So, um, am I going for time, Ken? Yeah, I'm still good? Okay. So I do want to switch to the sustainable scenario and what it might mean and how it might play out. And at the forefront of this is Europe, and I guess um, you, know, you probably will have travelled to Europe and seen what's happening in Europe. There's some very, very ambitious plans which we have built into the stated policy scenario, but indeed um, we have countries that are phasing out coal that are endorsing um, zero carbon by 2050. How, how will that happen? Well, I guess the first thing to note is coal, obviously, will be phased out um, I think the, the Germans have committed, and they've probably got the largest coal-fired industry by 2038. Um, Britain, of course, has, has been getting exiting coal for some time, ever since Maggie Thatcher took a dislike to the coal miners. And that's going back to the 80s. Um, as I said, the last coal-fired, most recent one, was built um, more than 30 years ago. So in the case, in the case of gas as well, um, gas is de will, we anticipate being de a, a decline, although it will increase in the short run reasons I'll explain in a moment. Um, nuclear, well, so first of all, bioenergy, non-trivial, um, quite serious to the Europeans about, you can go to lots of places, Austria, and see piles of wood chips um, the side of when you enter a town, um, bioenergy is serious there. But the two really important things are, first of all, solar PV, um, not the highest capacity factors in the world, as I said, you know, Hamburg, the Netherlands, perhaps not the sunniest places you think of, I'll come back to capacity factors in a minute, but certain, an onshore wind, but the real gainer is that one, offshore wind. And again, 
This is really driven by policy commitments. You know, I talked about how China went from 1 to 50. We're just starting to see the beginning of these policy commitments um, by European governments. And what we anticipate is seeing the costs being driven down dramatically. We're anticipating auctions, and they are using auctions, which give price transparency as well as price pressure uh, in the 50 to $100 per megawatt hour, and that's certainly very competitive in Europe. Um, turbine blades uh, installations getting bigger, 8 to 12, me 12 megawatts, and certainly 20 megawatts is not impossible. Um, 20 megawatts is turbine's going to be about as high as the Turo fell, give or take a bit. So um, what that implies is that offshore wind would go from about 2% now, 2%, 2% down here, up to about 20% of power um, over the uh, projection period. But the good news, well, I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but there are a number of other countries who are developing or are already promulgated policies to develop offshore wind, and there are a number of them in our region. They include Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and China, just for a few. And in the case of a country like Japan, um, the theoretical potential is, is very, very large, um, probably 10 times their current electricity demand. That's just something you think about when you want to export to Japan, uh, export anything to Japan. Um, they're just embarking. They've set up a very good policy framework um, to basically to, um, to auction. I can go into this in some detail, but again, to put pressure on prices. Some of their waters are a bit deeper than would be ideal, certainly so, compared to the North Sea, but nonetheless, um, offshore wind is... I hesitate to say the next big thing, but a very strong emerging technology. Oh, and I forgot to mention the US. Um, the US is being driven by state-based policies, federal policies. Okay, I won't say anything more about that. State-based policies, um, a whole collection of states in the northeast have very impressive policy targets, and, and, and we anticipate um, globally, um, yeah, some pretty big numbers. I guess the other useful thing about offshore wind is the seasonal complementarity. Um, in Europe, um, obviously, particularly in Europe, um, solar energy is a summer-based phenomenon. So in winter, of course, anyone who's been to Europe knows that wind is going to be strongest in the winter. Uh, and that reduces the need for seasonal storage. Um, seasonal storage in Europe is mostly provided by gas. Um, very large seasonal storages of the order of um, 1,000 terawatt hours of energy equivalent. So this is quite an important development in terms of reducing the need of meeting those peak demands. Okay, um, I haven't talked much about the current policy scenario, but that's emissions on that track, and of course, clearly, that is not sustainable. Um, our current 33, you can see we had, did have a nice little levelling just there, but the last couple of years we've seen it continued upward trend. That's where we are in stated policies, pretty much a levelling off. Um, impressive change, but not good enough by a very large margin. That's where we need to be. That's sustainable scenario. And again, we've been criticised for this, um, but it's well below two degrees, which we consider to be congruent with the Paris Accords. And you can see we're reducing um, energy-based emissions from 33 to 10 gigatons over the last 30 years. Bear in mind, the last, I, you know, when I pointed out the last history of the last 30 years, we've had, we've seen fossil fuels basically maintain their share of a very rapidly growing energy mix. So we've got to do something about fossil fuels that are in that mix. Okay, solar PV important, but let me just talk about energy efficiency. Now, I haven't talked much, much about it at all, um, and it's been a fault of some of my previous presentations as well, but this uh, global perspective is the most important issue we can deal with. 
Currently, energy efficiency the last year improved by a little over 1%. Um, we need to do much, much better than that. Um, we need to improve by around about 3%. And the way we'll do that is with a whole collection of smaller policies. Let me just talk about those in general. Um, but motor vehicle, there's 21 policies there, so you probably haven't got a hope of reading them all. But I'll just try and talk about a few. Um, cars and trucks is going to be part of that. Um, just to comment on Australia's vehicle fuel efficiency over the last decade has improved by, fleet efficiency has improved by a little under 5% in the last decade and has gone, has deteriorated in the last two years. Yeah. We are the only IEA country without fuel efficiency standards. Non-existent. People won't want to speculate about that, but anyway, enough said. Um, there's a whole raft of, of you might think, in, um, electric motors, for example, you might think, well, that's a bit obscure. Um, the number of appliances that use electric motors, starting with refrigerators, is really very significant. Anyone who's bought a fridge in the last 10 years knows that things have improved a great deal. Um, lighting, just to pick another example, uh, in Europe now, I can get a 1,000 lumens, a light globe, 1,000 lumens for 4 watts. 4 watts. This is the globe that used to be 60 watt incandescent. Um, best I've been able to find at Bunnings is, is 10. Maybe somebody can do, do better than that for me. Maybe there's a website somewhere. I'd really, I think I'm going to start bringing some of those 4 watt, watt, four watt globes back to Australia. Um, you know, we're, our energy efficiency policy um, has some major deficiencies. Um, just, just going back to renewables. Um, so wind, solar, you know, plenty of people say, well, it could be more with solar PV. That solar PV wedge there represents an increase over the stated policy scenario of going from 3,200 gigawatts of capacity to more than 5,000 gigawatts of capacity. 5,000. Remember I said total global capacity in the world is 7,000. Wind, um, similar increase going from... Um, 3,000, uh, it's going from yeah, up to 3,000 gigawatts for wind, including much more offshore wind. Can we do more on solar PV? Yes. Um, obviously, the technology is, is, getting, is going places, but again, we need government policy, infrastructure, financing, market design. Maybe we can start to move away from the targets we've seen in the past, although I think they'll still be important. Yes, costs are dropping, and that's true for battery storage as well. I mean, we only got to go back five years, and um, storage, battery storage was costing six fifty um, dollars per kilo, US dollars per kilowatt hour. Tesla came in at about four fifty, and certainly there are plenty of projections that show um, battery costs dropping at a not dissimilar rate to the sort of savings, we, we, the sort of things we've seen in photovoltaics. Um, okay, fuel switching, CCS. I mentioned CCS earlier. If we haven't got CCS, okay, it's only an itty-bitty little wedge. If we haven't got CCS, wherever it is in here, um, to address some of the high emission sectors such as industry, um, then we've got a problem. Now, maybe hydrogen can, can do the job for us, but um, you know, just one example out of the book, I, I just was reading it last night, in fact, that 100 gigawatts of solar that I talked about, if it was turned into hydrogen and we used the hydrogen in DRI to smelt steel, we could do that 100 gigawatts would produce would cover about 3% of current global steel. So hopefully you're getting the idea of the magnitude of this problem. Um, we need everything and we need it louder than everything else. 
Uh, Ken's starting to look a bit anxious. Okay. Okay, no, it's cool. Good. Okay. So, the quiz. Okay. You all got that one right. Um, the last 20 years, we've made pretty much no progress in getting fossil fuels out of the system. So, that's a bit depressing. So, second one. Okay. Change is possible, and pretty quick at that. We've seen US... US go from 13, I think it was 13 million barrels a day. Um, when I looked at the EIA website last night, they were down to about half a million barrels, so a few percent. We anticipate the US will be uh, a net oil exporter um, next year or the year after, I guess, obviously. Now, having said that, of course, this wonderful phrase, net oil imports, it's fabulous. It's only a few years ago the US prohibited export of crude oil, I might add. You know, that was, BHP was one of the companies instrumental in changing that. Um, but you can, you can see here a little bit of a hiatus when um, oil prices had a bit of a hiccup in 14, 15, 16, but since then um, the Americans got on with it. One thing you need to be aware of there is that, of course, the US is still importing around about 8 or 9 million barrels a day of oil, but it's exporting roughly the same amount as well. So it's still involved in a dynamic oil trade. The sad thing about it is, of course, that China, which has already overtaken the um, US as the world's major, largest oil importer, will actually overtake the EU um, within a few years, and Indian oil imports will double. Um, so clearly the whole focus of oil trade is shifting into the Asia-Pacific, which, barring some incident of the tectonic plates, Australia will continue to find itself, I fear. And as a result of that, we need to be thinking a little bit more about oil security. Um, I'll leave other people to speculate on what this has meant for the behaviour of the US with regard to energy. I think that's way above my pay grade. So, um, this one got a few people stumped. Okay, um, power was the winner, but silver medal goes to the SUVs. So, anyone care to hazard a guess what proportion of the Australian car fleet is currently is new car, new car purchases is SUVs? Oh, 40? I've got 40? No, no, we've, we, we're the silver medal. Silver medal. The Americans win, but we're 47%. So, you know, I was, I was at a, another conference recently and some, I was hearing somebody talking about, you know, how the companies, fossil fuel companies are screwing us and all of that. 47% um, of new car buyers say SUVs the way to go. So that, that represents, at a global level, that's 550 gigatons of increased emissions. Roughly Australia. One Australia in the last 10 years on SUVs. Yeah, OK. This, this is why it's so hard. Um, as I said, we're the, Australia's a silver medalist here. Um, the Americans are ahead of us. But of course, the vector is pretty clear. We are actually increasing. Every year I come back to Canberra and I, first time I drive the car I get stuck between two SUVs and I can't see to get out. I don't know how people do this. I, I never learnt to do this when I learnt to drive. I just back out and hope these days. <laughs> Sorry? They just buy an SUV. Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> Join the club. Yeah, get with the strength. It's good. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, as, as I said, Australia doesn't have a, um, a fuel efficiency standard and it's showing. We, we lag a long, long way behind. And, of course, that fuel is, as I said, basically uh, it's fuel, fuel imports. Um, I'm going to say, yeah, half a gigaton. 3.3, that's 3.3 million barrels of oil, by the way, which is um, a big chunk of oil. 
um, oil demand. There, there was a time when we thought with efficiency standards oil demand might actually plateau, but we didn't count on that. Um, that actually, that increase, if, if that's continued, we'll need 150 million uh, extra electric vehicles globally to offset that, 150 million. Our current forecast, our current projection, I've done it again, current projection for electric vehicles by 2040 is around about 300 million. We can certainly do better than that globally, um, but we say 300 million. Um, so half of them will just go, will be off, half of that will be savings to offset that. Um, electric vehicles in Australia, yeah, that's a good one. I'm, I'm told, I'm told there is an electric vehicle strategy emerging. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, I, I did try looking up how many electric vehicles were sold in Australia and I couldn't really get a very good figure on it. The data isn't good enough. Okay, enough said, I think. Ah. So, well, 100 gig, yeah, okay, this one got, so let's go back, 100 gigawatts. Now, a few years back, 100 gigawatts of solar was basically being installed in high latitude countries. So we got about 120 terawatt hours out of that 100 gigawatts. Not so good. We do a lot better than that in Australia, of course, because we're a sunny country. Well, apparently, we're looking outside. But um, these days, we're getting about 150 terawatt hours for 100 gigawatts. 150 terawatt hours, because um, we're seeing it in places like India and Mexico and in Australia. And as a result of that, the correct answer is getting on towards 200 years. 100 gigawatts is a very, very impressive amount of production. Um, but we need to do much more. Please, please don't misinterpret that. I'm not putting photovoltaics down. I'm just trying to give you a realistic appreciation of how fast we can change this sector. Oh, okay. Um, as I said, you know, it comes back to this virtuous circle of policy ambition, increasing scale, driving down costs. We'll see this in, we've already seen it in solar. We can certainly do more. Um, we can do it, we'll see it in batteries, hopefully, and hopefully we'll see it in solar, um, in offshore wind. Lastly, lastly, okay, correct answer is more than 90% and that figure is increasing and if and when another refinery closes, um, which they're talking about doing. Um, I also didn't mention the fact that um, fuel quality is pretty poor in Australia as well, but I digress completely. Um, one of the important messages of the, of the sustainable development scenario, which I forgot to mention, which is very important, is that world oil demand by 2050 would fall to 50 million barrels a day, five zero. Half of what it currently is, with very, very, cons well, benefits obviously for air quality to start with, thanks very much. Um, air quality in Sydney's not too flash these days, although a fair bit of that was bushfires to be fair. Um, but obviously security, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it would have some serious consequences from oil exporting economies, but you know we can talk about them in due course. And, and, of course, affordability. It's got to put downward pressure on oil prices, which may act against electric vehicles, which is why we need more policies. So now Ken's really starting to look worried, so I'm going to wrap up. OK, energy policies are adjusting, but the response is far from adequate. I made that point at the very beginning. Energy security, affordability, environmental threats. Policy is not adequate. Hopefully I've given you a few little steers along the way as to um, how we can do, what we can do about it. Oil and gas is profoundly being changed. That's, got, that's good news and bad news. Solar, wind, storage, digital, all mentioned this morning, 
uh, transforming the electricity sector in the case of Australia very damn quickly, WA even faster. But firstly, we have to keep, governments have to keep involved, even, even not even, we're going to talk about market design this afternoon, fine and good, but we also need to tack, tackle that 2,150 gigawatts of young coal-fired plant. Um, Africa, I only mentioned briefly, um, Africa will become much more influential and a much more influential gas producer if you're interested in those things. Okay, um, all have a part to play. Companies, investors, individuals, those people buying SUVs, all got, a, all got a role to play here. But when it comes down to it, it's about governments. Governments need to take the lead. And we need policies that are sustainable and sustained, stable, um, that develop that virtuous circle that I was talking about before. Policy ambition, scale, um, deployment, falling costs. We, don't, we need it in solar. We need to see it in at least another, tw another 20 or so areas if we're going to make that transition. So um, I'll just leave you one last thought. I couldn't help it. Um, I, did, I did find some data. Share of electric vehicles and new car sales. There's Australia down the bottom. That's us. I'm amazed it was that high, actually, but no, I don't, the <laughs> data, data is a bit dodgy, I think, to be perfectly blunt. Well, sorry, I shouldn't. That's a Bloomberg slide, so I won't bag Bloomberg, but I don't know where they got the numbers, but they're small. I mean... In France, if you, go, you know, if you catch a taxi in Paris these days, it'll be, it'll be a Tesla. The reason's really simple. Um, ch fast charging is available. Um, fuel prices are high. If, you drive, you know, if you're running a taxi, it's 100,000 kilometres a year, give or take a bit, um, and the economics are just brilliant. You know, it's cheap to run an electric car. Um, I, I was away for most of the election campaign, so I missed out on some of the juicier bits of electric vehicle um, debate, I suppose, for want of a better term. Um, but some of the people who are really picking this up are commercial vehicles, because a lot of commercial vehicles just whiz around towns, maybe do 100, 150 kilometres a day. Again, the economics of it are just overpowering. Um, sadly, not in Australia, obviously. So with that, I shall conclude, and Ken's going to wrap me up definitely this time. <laughs> that wasn't too bad. Oh, okay. So thank you very much, Ian. That was fantastic as usual. We'll uh, take uh, a seat now and uh, uh, open things up for questions. Uh, just to kick off, uh, I'd like to revisit uh, something you said uh, earlier on, which is that uh, you know there are amazing opportunities coming up for offshore wind, something that really wasn't on the radar, uh, let's say, a few years ago. Uh, but uh, technology advances inexorably, as we all know. Um, scale drives down... Uh, price uh, and uh, and costs, and uh, and governments uh, get into into the act and help to make things happen. Uh, so many reasons why why this is going on. The thing that interests me is what you said about Japan, about Japan's enormous opportunity for offshore wind resource and, and other uh, regions as well, but Japan in particular because Japan is full bore about hydrogen. And they're coming to Australia to ask for our hydrogen. They're going to other places as well. And it's all about security of supply. They have enormous uh, you know, fossil fuel imports that they can't uh, uh, control in the long term, so they want to get away from that. They want to have security of supply. So why is it that Japan is so full bore about hydrogen when they've got this enormous opportunity in offshore wind? OK, well, um, first of all, hydrogen... I mean, it, we've seen a lot of waves of interest in hydrogen. Um, first time I came across hydrogen, I had an enthusiastic professor who 
confidently predicted that hydrogen would be a major vector within 10 or 15 years. Sadly, that was 50 years ago, give or take. So um, I don't want to sound cynical. Um, the key thing about hydrogen, and we can talk a lot more about it this afternoon, is its ability to get to, to the hard to decarbonise sectors. Now, electricity, you know, we can see a pathway to decarbonise electricity um, with the technologies we have if, if we push hard enough. Uh, in the case of some sectors and steel, aviation, two that come quickly to mind, hydrogen may be one of the only viable solutions we have. Um, at the moment, hydrogen costs are, are high, um, typically... Um, probably, I'm trying to think, in $8, about $30 per Australian per, per gigajoule. It's obviously expensive, but again, with scale, we're pretty confident we can drive those costs down. Um, certainly, the, the Japanese are interested in seeing that technology developed, as, as are a number of countries um, in, in Europe, um, Germany, Korea as well, and, and the Asia-Pacific. Um, I hesitate to say I've heard it all before, but I have heard it all before, um, so sorry about that. Um, but, yeah, why are they interested? I, I can only speculate on their motives. Um, there's two questions there when you talk about um, exporting to hydrogen, of course, is one, um, how much, what demand will arrive? And in the case of, we know from our experience with the gas industry, developing demand for gaseous fuel can be a very slow and torturous process. The second issue is whether Australia will have a competitive advantage, a durable competitive advantage in producing and shipping hydrogen, which is the second question, but that's for this afternoon. Indeed. And uh, with your focus uh, at the very end there about electric vehicles, um, so you've got to ask the question. We got rid of our car industry in Australia, right? Yeah. So no reason to support domestic uh, car manufacturing. Uh, we import, as you've shown, just about all the oil that we consume. And uh, the IEA beats us over the head occasionally for not having enough uh, domestic reserves. Did I fail to mention that, did I? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about I'll that. give you a free kick there. Yeah, so, okay. so why? Why don't we have fuel efficiency? Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, Australia is an outlier in, in many ways in, in an IEA context. We, we don't have um, fuel efficiency targets for our vehicles despite not having a, a motor vehicle industry. As I said, I, I worked in this town for 36 years and every time I tried to promote a fuel efficiency target, I got told by the industry department that, no, no, we can't have that because, you know, our manufacturers produce big, useless, clunky six-cylinder cars. Um, that excuse disappeared in about... 2014, when we knew the last one was going to close. So here we are, almost 2020, um, still no action. Um, don't ask me, I, I don't, you know, I'm just a blow in um, why that should be the case. As, as you correctly point out, we, Australia is also an outlier in terms of emergency reserve stocks. We have none. Um, we are not compliant with our IEA treaty obligations and have not been compliant for eight, nine years or thereabouts. And our domestic production is falling, and most of our domestic production is, in fact, exported anyway. So that our net oil imports, as you saw there, are basically pretty much all our consumption. So um, there are plenty of reasons why a fuel efficiency policy and electric vehicle policy would make good sense. Um, you know, the value proposition on electric vehicles is less urban pollution, less oil imports, more oil security, lower running costs for a, a very large portion of the population. So what am I missing out here? Um, I don't know, maybe someone else can offer an explanation. As I said, I'm just a blow-in. I just turn up here for six months of the year and try and get on top of the political debate and obviously failed as my. <laughs> OK, so now let's uh, move to uh, questions from the audience. I can see a hand right up the back. Uh, if we could maybe uh, get a mic up there and then there's uh, a couple down the front here, just uh, down, down here below at the front. Oh, sorry, no, there's one there in the middle. Yep. OK, so the middle one's got the mic first. Let's go with you. 
Yeah, look, thanks identify for... identify yourself. Thank you. Thanks for a fabulous talk. John Story from University of New South Wales. Um, you didn't mention anything about a possible drawdown of atmospheric CO2 either directly with uh, CCS or with land use change and the possibility that this might defray some of our failure in the power generation area. Could you elaborate on that, please? Okay, well, the World Energy Outlook goes out 20 years, um, and with this year we've gone out to, to 2050. Um, we're pretty conservative on our technologies. We like to see them actually working before we put them in the projections. Sorry, I, I know it's a bit old-fashioned. I'm an old-fashioned kind of bloke. Um, <laughs> So, you know, in the case of hydrogen in steel, for example, we're just seeing some trials of it. So, got a little out there in 2050, we've got a little bit of hydrogen in steel, um, but we haven't got any of the atmospheric capture technologies. And, you know, take my IEA head off for a minute. I mean, if that's the answer, we've, we've asked the wrong question. I'm sorry. Uh, hi, Alistair Sproul, University of New South Wales. Thanks for a very interesting talk. Just wondering about, um, given the good prospects that you're painting for electric vehicles uh, and the, the possibility of low carbon emissions. Um, could you give us some information about the uh, carbon emissions from shale oil um, and, and what, what's, what's the driver there? How, how are they sort of uh, producing it at low cost but inflicting upon, upon us, I, I guess, two to three times the carbon emissions of conventional oil? Okay, okay, let's do that. Yeah, okay, I'm not... Not sure about that last figure you give, but I'm going to make a few comments. Um, firstly, when we are seeing associated gas pr produced with, this, with the oil, um, particularly in North America, this phenomenon has been extremely rapid, and you see that in the price of, if you watch the news, you see the price of tapas versus West Texas. West Texas is like $10 cheaper than tapas. And the answer to that is the Americans are having a lot of trouble building the necessary pipelines to get the oil out, and that's true for gas as well. So we are seeing, not just in the US, but we're seeing this everywhere with the conventional oil industry as well, the gas is either flared or worse, just released. If you fly over the Middle East uh, at night, you'll see flares everywhere. So, you know, the issue, the issue with unconventional oil is not so much, um, you know, OK, you do have a much larger number of wells. Um, if you go, there's a website, wonderful website in the United States called Frack Focus, and you can see all the wells that are listed there a whole collection of information about them, and there are hundreds of thousands of wells on the website. So even a small amount of fugitive methane being emitted from each well is obviously an issue. Um, the IEA spent quite a bit of time trying to estimate how much fugitive methane there is globally of the order of 90 to 100 million tonnes. Now, obviously, that methane is a much more significant greenhouse gas than per tonne than CO2, um, and it, it is a really important issue. It's, it is incumbent on... Um, everyone associated with oil and gas production, first of all, to reduce um, methane emissions upon completion. So when the world's completed, there's quite frequently a methane leak there. Um, there is the technology to address that, and um, there are moves to make that obligatory everywhere. Um, secondly, to reduce methane leakage in general right through the, the gas production and use pipeline. But of course, you know, in time, um, gas usage has to decline. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Malcolm Harrington, just a local. Uh, but I don't blow in as often as you do, unfortunately. Um, more often, maybe. Uh, anyway, uh, a few days ago, Pat, Con Pat Con Conroy from the Labor Party was giving an address, and he was saying that uh, world 
coal demand may as well be met by Australian mines rather than outsourcing it to other countries. Your projections show that world coal demand is strong and pretty steady until 2040 or 2050. Is there an argument for Australia to meet that demand, that is by continuing or even growing exports, or should we do something different? Okay, well, um, two, two things. One, yes, coal demand is in, a, in the stated policy scenario remains relatively stable, but of course its it share will be falling as a, as a portion of the market, uh, growing market. But in a, in a sustainable scenario, coal, coal use at current and projected levels is simply incompatible with sustainable outcomes. It's, that's the reality of the world. How that's supplied, um, that's a question for the market to sort out. Um, Australian coal producers, I mean, you've got to remember the Australian market, about half their tonnage is coking coal, half steaming. So we're talking about steaming coal here. Coking coal will be subject to the, to the changes in steel. And again, steel has some of the same legacy issues that coal-fired plants have. Um, the Chinese have built uh, coking coal industry, sorry, a steel industry of over 800 million tonnes capacity in the last 20 years, and that's not going to disappear overnight either. So, you know, coking coal, we talk about that's one market, steaming coal, um, you know, the direction of change is pretty clear. And if I can add to that, there's coal and then there's coal. So some types of coal are actually uh, less carbon emitting than others. And uh, if we had a price on carbon, then uh, that would determine which of these coal deposits get burnt during the transition phase we've got to have in the next uh, few decades. Um, that's coming, right? It's not here yet. Uh, but in the end, that will determine who exports coal and who doesn't because uh, it'll price poor quality coal out of the market. In fact, the banks are already doing that. I think that's true to say, isn't it, Ian? Sure. Banks, uh, banks know 80% of the coal's got to stay in the ground at least. And so, for example, Westpac Bank, only bank... 15% of the top quality coal reserves uh, because they know it's, the rest of them are going to be stranded assets. So if Australia's got the best quality coal, we should be getting out the door as fast as we can to meet the demand we know has got to happen to replace poor quality coal that's going to produce more greenhouse gas emissions during the transition phase. Having, having said that, I mean, you could easily speculate the opposite way in saying if our collection of banks and finances in the Western world say we don't want to fund coal anymore, then um, those countries where those sorts of constraints don't apply, China and India, um, will produce the coal that's required. And that may be a tapering um, demand if we get a lot more photovoltaic in India and if the Chinese move down the pathway that they're, they're talking about with emissions peaking pretty soon, maybe 2030. Um, but, yeah, there's, there is a balancing issue there. There's, a, there's certainly some, some validity in that, in that argument. Uh, Ian, thanks very much for your talk. Ian Cumming, you mentioned a couple of times security. Yep. and the effect on security. I wonder if you could elaborate on what you mean by security, given Australia doesn't have a national security policy. OK, well, the first point to make is, of course, that the, the most important security question relates to electricity. I think hopefully you got that message from, from Audrey today, and we shouldn't take that for granted. We've got a lot of work to do in the market design space, and we're going to talk a lot more about this this afternoon. Um, in the case of what I was questioning about was, was oil security, um, the rest of IEA members maintain stocks of, of very large oil stocks, either mandated by governments or um, held by their own stock agencies. Um, there's a mixture of policies across. In the case of the US, of course, because of that fall in net oil imports, which is how it's measured, the US now holds 700 days of oil stocks. It's handy. Um, it's one of the side benefits of this. Um, so Australia doesn't hold those oil stocks. In the past, when we've had interruptions, and I'll just take the case study of Hurricane Katrina, 
Um, US 2005, August 2005, hit with a massive hurricane, Category 5, Katrina, Rita and Wilma, three of them in a row. Um, the IEA initiated emergency stock release and the physical impact of that was that oil stocks released in Europe and those stocks actually physically in the next few days moved across the Atlantic to the United States. Now, obviously because of that sort of um, event, most of the impact was in the Atlantic market. Um, my point is that in the future it's very clear that more and more traded oil, seaborne oil, will be traded in the Asia-Pacific market, whereas I said Australia's going to remain for the foreseeable future. Um, and a lot of that oil is going to come out of Middle East and OPEC countries. We've just seen you know, a major incident at Abkhaik, and it proves how vulnerable, physically vulnerable the area is. Strait of Hormuz, again, some issues there. Um, you know, what will happen in Australia with our current level of stocks if those supplies are interrupted for any length of time? Um, you know, I'll leave you to speculate on that, but you know, the amount of gasoline stocks we hold in the country is 20 days, maybe. <laughs> if everyone rushes out and fills their tanks, that's gone. Bang, like that. So, um, you know, the government's been, IEA and the government have been talking about this for some years. I'm told the government has a plan to address the issue by 2026. Well, good. Well, that's positive. Hi, Ian. Um, Penelope Howarth from Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I wanted you to, um, and thanks very much for your presentation, um, I want you to talk a bit more about um, the opportunities uh, and uh, for Australia in uh, the low emissions energy future, um, the trade, especially export opportunities, um, the challenges as well as the opportunities, and what would you recommend for the Australian government in particular to be doing? Okay, well, Ken's the expert on this, but as I said, there's, there's, you know, there's a number of aspects here. I mean, there's, there's the possibility of direct export of electricity, um, certainly to Southeast Asia, direct export of, of hydrogen, hopefully, not hopefully, um, low, um, you know, zero carbon hydrogen as opposed to the, what we, what's currently produced globally. Um, the, the, the two issues there is, you know, what will the level of demand be? And that's related to how will that, particularly the electricity sector, but also steel and, and other sectors, how will those sectors evolve? So how will demand emerge? And, and secondly, can Australia meet that demand competitively? Now, you know, there are all sorts of barriers to, let's say, trading electricity to ASEAN countries, not the least being a very deep trench between us and them, um, which no, one's, no one globally has ever laid a cable over in that deeper water um, over that active uh, fault line technical barrier. Um, these technical barriers can change. The second one is, is that question of competitiveness and you know, the history of resource development in Australia, and I'll take the example of the gas development. Um, you know, let's be perfectly blunt here. Um, from an Australian perspective, we've seen some pretty big cost overruns in that development. Some, um, some big investors have made that pretty clear that you know, they weren't very happy with, with a number of those aspects. Um, Coordinated state and federal policies are going to be very important, very important here as well. I come back to the example of the aluminium sector in Australia. Every state put their hand up for an aluminium smelter, um, and a few of them actually got federal government support, and I'll, I'll own up to being part of that. Um, that's been a tremendous success, hasn't it? I'll leave you to speculate. I'm sorry, I shouldn't. That's a bit, bit cynical. Um, you know, we are stuck with um, a large coal, a large aluminium smelting industry based on coal-fired power. So, yeah, look, I, I could talk all day about that <laughs> and probably, um, you know, so let's, let's do some other questions. We, we are coming back to it this afternoon, by the way. Um, Brian Walker from SARA and ANU. I'll come back to your emphasis, which I agree with on policy. 
And uh, William Nordhaus, an economist from Yale, has raised the notion of carbon clubs where groups of multinational corporations and even countries will combine together to avoid the weakness of international agreements and impose sanctions and limits of one kind or another on, on countries that, or industries that they think are defying and not playing their role in bringing down carbon. What, what role do you think that might have in policy? Well, I mean, at the moment, you know, the, the main game in town remains the UNFCCC, remains the, the policy commitments that, that all governments have made. Um, you know, the process will continue to report on those. I mean, next year we'll have a first report. Um, the trading system, obviously, I mean, the way the methodology works is, of course, based on a national emissions, not on what goes out or in. Anyone who's tried to work in that space on inventory will know that bringing trade to account is an absolute nightmare. Um, which, which is the first, first thing when I hear that, hear that proposal, I think of trade and how complicated that is. People import something and then export another product. We'll come back to my aluminium example, you know, you export aluminium oxide and then import aluminium metal. So how do you bring that all to account? My, my thought is, you know, let's stick with what we've got until it's proven to be broken. Um, and let's see some policies that, you know, address some of these issues. And let's talk to some of the countries that aren't aren't making those, you know, aren't making their goals and trying to figure out why. I mean, just take the example of Africa, for example, you know, that five gigawatts of solar, there's a whole battery of reasons why that isn't happening. There's a lot of things we as Australians, well, the international community, but as Australians can do. I mean, the Crawford School, we've, we've run a course for um, policy decision makers, energy policy makers in sub-Saharan Africa and um, South Asia, Bangladesh and so on. Um, to try and educate people of the sorts of policy changes that are required. So I, I just, when I look at that trading space, I kind of think, mm, yeah, okay, that's going to get very complicated very quickly. I don't, don't know when anyone's done any work in the inventory space. I'm sure there's somebody at the ANU who's done some work on that. It's really tough, <laughs> really tough. Thank you, uh, Ying. Uh, Jing Huang from uh, CSRO. Um, so I, I just get a questions about the uh, the public uh, uh, opinion. I guess that's probably one of, one of the biggest uncertainty um, in terms of uh, advancing the uh, renewable energy uh, sector. So because that will influence the policy makers and the world that. But in the public domain, I keep hearing about some misconcepts uh, like the uh, renewable energy are, are very expensive and or because the uh, wind does not always blow, or sun does not always shine, so this doesn't work. So, so I'm, I'm just wondering if uh, IEA uh, engages something in terms of the public education you know, on, on, on uh, clarifying, clarifying these uh, uh, misconceptions yeah. which was having the public domain. Yeah, okay, well, uh, those misconcepts are not confined to Australia. Um, one of the, that magazine I showed before had an opinion poll in it which showed that 75% of, a bit higher than that, of French people believe that nuclear power was a major contributor to CO2 emissions. <laughs> so, you know, if you're trying to get support for nuclear energy in France, you've run into a bit of a problem there. Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. People like me keep giving lectures like this, maybe to the, to the converted, as it were. We keep publishing um, a whole collection of things. Most of our stuff is actually free on the website, even the WEO, which costs... 180 euro, I want to say. Um, you wait a year and it's free. Um, and the oil market reports, there's a raft of information out there, hopefully mostly accurate, um, but there's a hell of a lot of misinformation out there in the real world as well. I mean, I, I mean 
dare I say, fake news, but, you know, my example of French nuclear, for example. You know, I've, I've heard, you know, green advocates literally say that on French TV. I'm not kidding. I wish I were. Makes it, makes it hard. The, you know, the French have actually just closed... Well, sorry, next month I think they're going to close the first of their reactors um, over on the Rhine, Fessenheim, and um, that's premature. Um, it's probably got about another 10 years' life left in it. So French greenhouse gas emissions will, will go up. It's the reality. Higher than they would otherwise be. So do we have any other questions? Yes. Uh, Jenny Goldie, um, we we saw the bombing of the oil um, and cake yeah. refinery in in Saudi Arabia, um, probably by Iran. Uh, the situation in the Middle East is seems to be quite volatile. Um, you've already talked about oil security and most of our oil coming out through the Strait of Hormuz. I- Iran could easily close the Strait of Hormuz. Um, what, what do you? This is a political question. You know, what what is the likelihood of that happening? Do you think? Well, you, you, I mean, your guess is as good as mine on that one. But I mean, the, the basic arithmetic is such that it is a very narrow um, strait. A large quantity of oil, and, and I might say LNG comes out of it as well. Um, it is vulnerable. There's no doubt about that. Um, and. Um, the inst- well, the IEA is one of the instruments that Western countries, that, that oil importers in general, have to deal with that issue um, to buy time to resolve the situation. As I said, in the case of, of Hurricane Katrina and, and more recently in the, when Libya um, had its revolution, um, that bought time to resolve the situation. Uh, it calmed markets. Um, people didn't rush out to fill up their gas tanks. Um, and, you know, and that's a very powerful and important policy tool um, that IEA members have collectively, and indeed, when I say IEA members, we've got a whole collection of association countries who are you know, who are participating in that type of activity as well. So um, the answer is, you know, if you think storms going to damage your house, you take out insurance policy. Um, maybe you build, maybe you repair the roof too, um, but you certainly take out insurance policy, and that's what the uh, that's what the current mechanisms are in the IEA. Okay, it looks like we've come to the uh, end of the questions. Uh, So uh, yet again, uh, we've uh, had a a fantastic uh, insight into what's happening around the world, uh, where future energy trends are taking us. Uh, And uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, welcome back Ian to uh, Canberra at this time of year and to hear the latest uh, on the World Energy Outlook. So please join me with you in thanking Ian again. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. 